The scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 14, 12 through 24. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. As you know, we have been going through our sermon series, The Mother Tongue. And it's learning a language and learning the words and the vocabulary for who we are as people of the table. We've talked about our vision. We're here to provide a place at the table of God's grace. Our mission to invite people into a relationship with Christ and form a community that worships and serves together for the transformation of our neighborhoods. This all happens through prayer, and as we've done this and prayed over it, we've been uh, looking at our values as well. We've talked about hospitality, we've talked about rootedness, we've talked about story, and today we're going to talk about feasting. We're going to be feasting later today as well. So I wasn't going to advertise that, but since we're such a tight community. I want to begin by reading a, a poem that a, a friend of mine gave me this week uh, because I think it, I think it kind of begins to uh, uh, focus us on eating in particular, but then we'll move into feasting as well. So this uh, poem is entitled, Perhaps the World Ends Here, and it's by Joy Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table, we gossip, recall enemies, and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around us, our, around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun, 
Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. I love the picture that that gives us of what a table does and what a table is and how we participate in it. Our whole lives function, happen around a table. Eating is a regular part of our lives. Most of us probably eat about three meals a day, give or take, at least. Sometimes we skip breakfast or lunch. Sometimes we have a few extra meals throughout the day as well. The table is a central part of our existence, not just our lives. We can't live without eating. But feasting, in particular, feasting goes beyond mere eating. Feasting is celebratory. It's indulgent. It might be excessive even. It's rich foods when you decide you're not going to count your calories anymore, right? This is Thanksgiving. This is Christmas. These are like the best times of the year because the calories don't count, or maybe we just don't count them. It's delicious food that fills um, our mouths and our bodies uh, to remind us of goodness, of good, uh, goodness that God has given us. The Greeks and the Romans worshipped uh, Dionysus or Bacchus. This was the Greek god of wine or overindulging and also madness because of what overindulging would do as well. It's where we get the word bacchanal. It's a wild and drunken revelry kind of a party. It's very stereotypical. Think of, you know, the stereotypical college years, um, and that is what a bacchanal is. Maybe you've heard of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. The phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die, is attributed to him. His philosophy was one of consuming experiences and pursuing pleasure and just living out just an absolute hedonistic uh, life because he believed that death was the end of both your body and your soul. So you should collect and consume as many experiences as you possibly can while you are still alive. Both these philosophies are still alive and well. Bacchus or Bacchanal as well as Epicurus. There's a blog called Epicurious which kind of plays off of that and it's a food blog so my mouth has a hard time just saying Epicurus all the time. But these are still these philosophies are still alive and well. It's feasting to forget or to numb the pain of our lives, to indulge wildly and without uh, any kind of sense of consequences that might come from it. I think the real question is, why do we talk about feasting in such a broken world? With what we've experienced over the last week, either personally, as I traveled home to be with a friend for his wife's funeral, or what we've seen in shootings in Buffalo, in uh, Uvalde, or in California as well, how are we able to talk about feasting in a time like this? I think it's because feasting reminds us that one day Christ will again return to wipe away every tear, to uh, pound our swords or guns into plowshares, to bring peace on earth as it is in heaven. 
See, as Christians, we don't believe our body and soul cease to exist at death. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So the feast we are talking about this morning has a different tone to it. It's not about collecting experiences and consuming everything that we possibly can. It's about eating in a way that gives us hope, that reminds us that this is just a foretaste of the heavenly feast to come when Jesus does bring peace on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was often called a glutton and a drunkard. He was called one, not because he was one, but because of those were the types of people that he hung out with. He was always down to party. He spent a lot of time with people eating and drinking. Some might say he was the original foodie, but I think that is to lessen his divinity uh, quite a bit. Uh, But he knew that feasting was a foretaste of heaven divine. Jesus, for Jesus, though, feasting wasn't an overindulgent, gluttonous party. It was a foretaste of the feast to come when heaven and earth would finally be united. For Jesus, feasting is grace, feasting is Sabbath, and feasting is incarnational. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Feasting is grace, feasting is Sabbath, and feasting is incarnational. First, feasting is grace. If you look at verses 14 through 20, you see kind of the flow of what's happening here. Jesus has just said to the host, uh, the Pharisee who invited him to his dinner table uh, on the Sabbath day to, you know, hey, next time, don't just invite all your friends and your brothers, uh, but invite the people that can't invite you back, that aren't able to pay you back. And then this guy outbursts. It is like such a classic like dinner party kind of line to kind of quench the awkwardness in the room. Hey, blessed are all those who are invited to eat the bread of the resurrection, right? Just kind of this kind of trying to bridge this gap and kind of kind of release all the awkwardness in the room that Jesus has taken out. But Jesus isn't going to let him. He's not having it. And he proceeds to tell another story. In this story, the host or the master of the banquet extends an invitation to all these people, but when time comes for it, everybody is, who is invited is busy. They have property. they got to look at their field. They just bought some oxen to help their workload. Uh, one guy just got married, which is great, and it's like, yeah, he, was, he got married, so he couldn't come, right? All these are valid excuses, but the host or the master then turns to the servant and says, Go invite all the riffraff. Go find all the people who can't repay us. Go uh, and gather everyone you possibly can. And when there is still room in his house, he instructs them to go back out and bring even worse people into his house. The highways and the hedges, this is the people that are probably just passing through the town who will never be able to repay them because they don't even live there. They can't return that favor of coming to this banquet. Now, I'm sure all the people listening to Jesus' story would have had their eyebrows raised at this point. Like, really? Is this, is this something that would actually happen? Because no respectable person would just invite all these people into his house. But it's not about the quality of persons invited. Remember, the initial people who were invited were a rather respectable bunch. They had responsibilities. They had lives to uh, tend to. They were so responsible that they said, we can't leave our normal everyday obligations. We have to take care of these things. So we can't stop and pause and come and eat this banquet that you've thrown. These were responsible people that couldn't even spend a week uh, weeknight out. 
but all the riffraff had nothing else to do, and they had nothing to show for it. Really, the question is, why would they even deserve the invitation? And the answer is, they don't. The first people didn't deserve the invitation, neither did the last person, because the invitation is an invitation of grace. This whole story is about grace. Grace is receiving that which isn't deserved, that which we don't deserve. Grace is pure gift. There is no obligation. There is no returning the favor because it can't be repaid. The most respectable and responsible first century Jews would have extended the invitation back. Well, why don't you come to my house now? You had me over. Now we'll have you over. But the master of the, of the banquets invites people that can never return the invitation. I think this is such a foreign concept to us because almost in everything we do, either we either do it like just out of kindness and niceness, being polite. Oh, we'll have you over next time. But in everything we do, there is no grace in this world. There is always something expected to come in return. But grace is not a consumer exercise. It's not goods and services that can be exchanged. It's not entertainment. It's not collection of experiences. Against Epicurus, the feasts Jesus invites us to are not about racking up another experience for our Instagram account. Grace is not confined to an hour on Sunday mornings, but it's a practice that permeates all of our lives. It affects every fiber of our being. The feast, Jesus, the feast of grace Jesus gives us, we call the Eucharist or communion or the last summer, supper, last summer, the last supper. It's a meal we celebrate every week here at the table, and we do so because it was so central to who Jesus wants his followers to be, a people who indulge in grace. There is always more grace for us to eat. And I like the word Eucharist for communion because I like how it sounds in my mouth. It feels like I'm eating when I say it, but it also means something uh, really deep and really wonderful. The U is the prefix in Greek, which means good, and charis is the word for grace. So it's a meal. It's a meal of good grace. And so we are able to feast on this grace. When Jesus celebrates the Passover uh, with his disciples and inaugurates the Last Supper or the Eucharist with them, he does so in four movements. Take, bless, break, and give. Jesus takes what we bring to him. He accepts us as we are, not how we want to be or not how he would like us to be. There's no cleaning up for him, but he accepts us just the way we are. He takes us when we come to him. He blesses us and gives thanks for who we are in coming to him as well. He doesn't tell us to shape up. He blesses and gives thanks. Thank you for coming to my feast. And then Jesus breaks us. He breaks what we bring to him. He breaks the pride. He breaks the self-approval. He breaks the respectability and the facades, the masks that we so easily wear. And suddenly we see that we really have nothing to bring to Jesus. And when we do that, he gives us new life. He gives us his life. And our lives are transformed by this meal of grace. And Christ lives in us. He takes us, he blesses us, he breaks us, and he gives us new life in him. 
meals remind us that it takes life to sustain life, whether it's a carrot or a chicken. I think vegans can't really get around this fact, even though I, I respect the intention, but taking a carrot is taking the life, its growth, and ending that, even as we would a chicken or a pig or another animal. Then eating eucharistically reminds us that Jesus gave his life for us without us deserving it, before we could do anything, before most of us, all of us, were born. Good grace he gives us so that we might live a life of grace. Therefore, to only eat communion eucharistically, I think would be near blasphemous. This grace in this meal should radiate from this table to all of our tables and all the meals that we eat throughout our lives. Graciously, thankfully, I think we can share our lives with those around us as well. Application for us, I think, is just don't eat alone. Don't eat by yourself. Eat with someone else so that you can share your life with them. So I'd I'd encourage you this week to, to make an effort to eat with somebody you normally wouldn't, to extend an invitation to a meal of someone who's near you, but maybe you haven't reached out to them. If you're able, buy their meal. Ask them about their life. Be gracious and kind to them as Christ has been with you. I think this is a part of what it means to eat eucharistically. Feasting is grace. Feasting is also Sabbath. I want to jump back to verse 14, 1 here. At the beginning, this whole chapter is about this meal and this story that Jesus tells. And it says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Sabbath meal was very important in the ancient Near East, and Sabbath keeping was very important as well. Any respectable Pharisee, any pious Jew would set aside an entire day where they would cease from work, (coughs) excuse me, so they could rest. But what happened was the Pharisees really wanted to make sure that anybody who considered themselves pious wouldn't even come close to breaking this fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. They wanted to build fences around fences to make sure that this commandment wasn't broken. And so they, even now today, have 39 categories of rules. Not 39 rules, but 39 categories of rules for what a pious Jew can or cannot do on a Sabbath. So they built, uh, so they put in a lot of work to be able to make the Sabbath happen. Like when we prepare to go on vacation, we work extra hours, right, to make sure all our work is done so that we, when we are gone, uh, our, our jobs don't fall apart. They would be doing that every week to make sure that they could take a Sabbath. It still required, Sabbath keeping still required that you would eat three meals a day, that you would go to the temple, that you would say your prayers, that you would worship. So a lot of preparation had to be put in in order to, to keep the Sabbath properly in the eyes of the first century Jews. But Jesus breaks all these rules over and over and over again. He heals people. This is very how this whole chapter begins, that he heals someone on their way to the house. People are watching him to see exactly what he's going to do. He walks too far and too much on Sabbath. He gleans food from the fields as he walks by to get a snack as well. All of these were prohibited actions on the Sabbath. But he does so to restore the true meaning of Sabbath, the true reason for Sabbath, which is rest. Feasting should be restful, 
especially when you're the guest. And it's not a rest to ignore our problems or to escape or to numb the pain of life, but a rest to be reminded that God is the one in control. He is the host of our lives. He is taking care of our needs. And so when we rest, we acknowledge that, knowing that he is sustaining our lives, not us ourselves. And so we eat and drink knowing that God has made space, that definition of hospitality again, right? He's created space for us to be able to rest in him, knowing that he is the one who sustains us. And when we rest, we are in a place to receive the grace of God. When we rest, we cease from the obligations of life and rejoice in what God has provided. When we rest, the voices of the world become quiet, hopefully even silent, and we are able to delight in the voice of God as he takes us, blesses us, breaks us, and gives us new life. Eugene Peterson said, Sabbath is a time set aside to do nothing so that we can receive everything. To set aside our anxious attempts to make ourselves useful, to set aside our tense restlessness, to set aside our media-saturated boredom. Sabbath is a time to receive silence and let it deepen into gratitude, to receive quiet into which forgotten faces and voices unobtrusively make themselves present to receive days of the completed week and absorb the wonder and miracle still reverberating from each one to receive our lord's amazing grace sabbath keeping is hard it's hard to set aside maybe an hour let alone a whole day in our week to be able to find rest We have a very noisy world, and we have notifications, and we have people, and we have kids, and we have obligations to do things. We have checklists that never end, that always have unchecked items on them. So Sabbath is a practice that we have to embrace intentionally. It reminds us that we are human beings, not human doings. We exist no matter what we do in our lives. It's not our performance. It's who we are and how God has created us, right? All the initial guests had valid excuses for why they didn't come. But the condemnation Jesus levels at them at the end of the story is because they were unwilling to step away from their duties of life to come and rest and feast It's these everyday obligations that constitute the greatest rival to the kingdom of God. There's always a good excuse, but a good excuse is not enough. From God's perspective, all these are mere trifles in comparison to the incomparable feast of grace that he wants us to take part in. So practice Sabbath. Take a day a week to worship, to pray, and to eat to the glory of God, delighting in his grace. Quit striving, put your phone away, set your to-do list aside and get to it tomorrow so that you have space to rest, so that you have space to listen to God's voice in your life. Take a nap, play with your kids, go on a walk, occupy yourself with something that brings delight and asks for nothing in return. Eat some really good food and drink some really good wine and delight in it and give thanks to God. Sabbath should extend also 
into every setting of our lives. And when we take a whole day to rest and enjoy it, we can then peacefully move through the rest of our lives, the rest of our week, knowing that God is sustaining us, even in our striving, in, even in our duties. Eat meals. Eat your three meals a day. Take an extra one as well. Because in these moments, we can be able to be reminded that God is good and wants to pour his grace into you because he loves you and he made you. This is the rest that God invites you into. Feasting is Sabbath. Feasting is grace. Feasting is also incarnation. Verses 21 through 24, Jesus kind of ends his parable here by saying, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Then he says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Once again, the master commands the servants to go out and invite people to come into the feast, to the highways and hedges, anybody and everybody. And he uses this word compel. And a lot of times we could skew this into proselytizing of dragging people in, but it actually holds the connotation of gently taking the hand of someone coming into your house to welcome them and to lead them personally with warmth and welcome as they come into your doors. I think this has a couple of implications for us. First, we are embodied people. We have flesh and blood. Our faith is embodied. It is not mere intellectual assent that God is after, but a faith that is lived out in a warm welcome, but also in feasting. We are incarnate. We have bodies, but Jesus is also incarnate. Jesus is the word made flesh, John 1 reminds us. And that word that God spoke at the beginning of creation is the word that now takes bodily form. Jesus was alive. He walked this earth. He, too, had to eat and drink in order to survive. Now, there's an interesting turn at the end of the story in verse 24. The you in Greek is actually plural. So when Jesus has been telling the story from the, the, the point of view of the master, he then says in verse 24, he says, For I tell you, and he takes the place of the master. And he says he's no longer talking to the servant, but he's talking to the dinner guests who have been listening to the story. And he makes himself the master of the feast. There's background to this passage Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. The Jews of the first century would have known this and been waiting for this particular feast to come about. Isaiah writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
Jesus here in this passage is saying that he is inaugurating this feast where we have fine wine, where we eat rich food, where we drink deeply, a feast where tears are wiped away, a feast where death is swallowed up forever, a feast where God himself comes, flesh and blood, to save us and to give us his salvation. There's a long-condemned heresy in the church called Gnosticism. It held, it holds still that our bodies, our physical bodies are something that we want to shed. We want to get rid of. We don't need them. The material things of this world are unimportant and they hinder us. They hold us down, including our bodies. So the only thing that matters is what you believe in your mind. This heresy continually creeps back into the church at various stages and whispers to us in our incarnate, that our incarnate being does not matter. And I would say culture largely uh, embraces this. What we do either in a pseudo-Epicurean way that you can collect as many experiences as you can. You can do whatever you want with your bodies because your body and your soul are not eternal and they will not exist. None of it matters anyway. Or by implying that our digital lives are the ones that matter. So what we post on our Instagram, what we have on our Facebook's feed, how we interact with people online is where our lives are truly lived. But we are incarnate beings, and Jesus came in the flesh to take us by the hand and usher us into his feast. The Eucharist reminds us that we are flesh and blood, and he is flesh and blood, not as something to escape, but something that God has created and called good. We eat rich food and we drink well-edged wine to remind us that we exist in body and soul, and this is a delight that we have in our living We need to feast to remind us that we exist in the flesh and that Jesus does as well. So I'm going to try to apply this personally because as I've thought over this this verse, this, this passage, and tried to think through what my life can look like, I'm going to try really hard to put my phone down more. And I thought this was kind of like a, a really simplistic application as well but then we Nick and I had a conversation right before this Um, I'm noticing that I'm pulling out my phone all the time just to kill 30 seconds to two seconds I'm nervous I don't know what to do and I'm pulling out my phone checking my email there's no new emails nothing else has happened I've seen all the Instagrams like all these things are there but it's taking away from the my life here of spending time in relationships spending time with my kids spending time with my wife so I'm going to try to start during meal times to put my phone away to keep it away from me not to have it out not to grab my phone first thing in the morning, except maybe to turn my alarm off. I'm going to try to start doing, starting my day by doing something incarnational first. Kissing someone I love, uh, making and drinking a good cup of coffee, eating some breakfast, praying, reading scripture, journaling, taking a walk. Something that reminds me that I exist here and now in this place, that I am finite, that I'm a human being, that I have limitations and that I live incarnationally because Christ lives incarnationally. I exist outside of the digital sphere. And I'd love if you would try this with me. But more so, I would love if you would ask me how it's going. And hopefully, I'll ask you as well. We feast because Jesus is the master of the feast.
He invites us into his feast, not for anything we have done, but out of sheer grace. He does so so that we can experience the Sabbath rest that he offers us. And in our incarnation, we remember that we have a God who is not far off, but one who has become incarnate to, leading us gently by the hand into his feast, both here on earth and in the life to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us in a way that you want to provide for us, to live, to eat, to have our being in you. And so we pray that we would remember of the grace that you have poured out for us in Christ, that we would remember that we can rest because you are the one who sustains our life, that we would remember that we are flesh and blood, that our lives matter, what we do with our bodies matter, that we are limited, and so may we, our limitations, be pre- to be present with those near us, that those that who love us and those to whom we can love as well. As your Son loved us and has empowered us by the Holy Spirit to be with us, to live with us by the power of your grace, we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.